Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. My source of strength, 
I want to talk to you today on the subject from Revelation 4 on what to do when your world falls apart. How to cope with cancer, death, a nervous breakdown, when children rebel, when your marriage collapses, when the church betrays you, when you lose your job, uh, how to continue on when the world that seems so solid to you falls apart. Revelation chapter 4 really tells us how to cope. I'd like you to take your Bible, please. And there are Bibles in the fronts of the pews, and I want to give every person, particularly on viewers on 3ABN, a very special welcome. I'd like to welcome every person. But I want you to turn with me now, please, to Revelation, the fourth chapter, which tells us how to cope when the world falls apart. Revelation chapter 4. You ready? After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. I want you to notice first and foremost in this chapter, the Bible says that there is a door standing open in heaven. That to me, my friend, is the start of good news because the Bible tells me that there is access to the king upon his throne. Did you know this? And this is not perceived by everybody, though I'm sure that you will know this, that on the Day of Atonement, there was only one person who could go through the door into the most holy place. Do you know who that was? Not just any priest had to be the high priest. Not just any person who was an Israelite. No, no, no. If an ordinary person like you or me walked into the most holy place, he didn't walk out. You couldn't do this. There was only one person on the tenth day of the seventh month, that was the high priest who could go into the very presence of the Shekinah. But the Bible tells me, now listen to this, because of Calvary, because Jesus has redeemed us, because he has purchased us with his own blood, every humble child of God can go within the veil because there's a door standing open in heaven. Amen. Now Martin Luther talked about this a great deal in the Protestant Reformation. He called this blessed doctrine the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Back in the Old Testament system, only one person, the high priest, on the tenth day of the seventh month could go into the presence of God. Because of Calvary, because Jesus has died for us 
and purchased us with his own blood, every humble child of God can go right into the very presence of the Father upon the throne. Amen. So, this tells me that in the church of God, there are no second-class citizens. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a hierarchy or some people who've got superior qualifications to approach God. The Bible tells me that at the foot of the cross, every person, my friend, is equal. Is that good news or is it not? Every person, my friend, at the foot of the cross is, is equal in the sight of God and every person today through Jesus can go through the door that has been opened in heaven and by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus we can enter today into the most holy place and we can see, this, uh, see the king seated on his throne. Amen. So the Bible tells us that today we have perfect access. Now I want you to notice here verses 2 and 3 of this wonderful chapter that you're going to enjoy today. Revelation chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. I want you please to take note of the person seated on the throne. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. So this, he wasn't there literally. He was in the Spirit. You can be there in the Spirit too. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And the one who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. I want you to notice the description here of the king upon his throne, if you don't mind. The jasper is white like a diamond. Some translations, instead of using the term jasper, they say that his appearance was like a diamond. Flashing, brilliant, and the purest white. Sardius, what color is sardius? It is a fiery red color. And so from the throne is the appearance of a multitude of diamonds shot through with the fire of judgment. What does this tell us about the one upon the throne? It tells us that the one upon the throne who is at the very center of the universe is a holy and a righteous God. There is no impurity in him. He is holy and righteous. What about the fire that comes forth from the throne? What does this tell us? It tells us that he is a righteous judge, because this indeed is the scene of the judgment. Did you know this, my beloved friends, that these words are almost a repeat, and we're not going to take time today to study it, but these words are almost a repeat of the description of the, of the judgment that is given in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7 you have this awesome view of the books being opened and millions stand before the person who is seated upon the throne and around the throne the Bible says there are thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. This is a picture of the Lord God Almighty in all his glory as he sits upon the throne of judgment. 
Let me tell you something that I found interesting this week. The word throne is used 57 times in the New Testament. 57 times. But of the, uh, of the 57 times that the, the word throne is mentioned in the New Testament, there are 40 references here in the book of Revelation. Did you notice this? The word throne is mentioned more in the apocalypse than the whole of the New Testament put together. Now why is this? Why is the concept of the throne of God so important? Why is this so important? Why does God talk about the throne more times in, the, in this book of Revelation than probably in the rest of the Bible put together? Why is this so? Let me tell you why. To understand the importance of the throne, you need to understand the conditions under which the book of Revelation was written. It was written, my friend, in a time of great adversity and persecution for the church. The church that received the, the letter or the book of Revelation was not a church that was enjoying the blessing of the world or the blessing of temporal prosperity, it was a church that was facing persecution and a church that was facing death. And when the church was being persecuted and when the church was being kicked around, God said, I want to give you a vision that is going to give you hope and a vision that is going to give you assurance. And God gave to the church the vision of the Lord of glory seated on his throne. Why is this so important? I will tell you why. Because the vision of the Lord, the judge in all his glory, pictured as a multitude of diamonds shot through with fiery red, tells me that the devil is not in charge and men are not in charge but God is in charge. Amen. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens to the church, whatever happens to the church members, there is something that you and I must recognize and realize and believe, and that is this. Whatever happens, whether it's cancer or a heart attack, God is on his throne. Amen. Mm -hmm. We are not left to circumstances, but God is on his throne. Bethany and I were reminiscing last night and we said, during the past 20 months or two years, we have seen the worst riot in the history of the United States of America. We have seen awful floods, the worst in the history of the United States of America. We've seen the worst cyclone or tornado in the history of the United States of America. We have seen the worst storms. We've seen the worst surge in crime. We personally experienced those awful fires that came down and almost destroyed the whole area where we were living. We have seen a satanic opposition to the preaching of the gospel in the three angels' messages. We've seen a concerted attempt on the part of some people to destroy our ministry and destroy this church. We've seen it. 
we have felt the brush of death when we discovered this week that Leanne had cancer. But I want you all to know this. In the cyclone, in the tornado, in the earthquake, in the flood, in the fire, in the persecution, and in the hatred, man does not call the shots. God is in charge. Amen. Mm -hmm. If you think that you're simply the victim of circumstances, you'll never have joy, and you'll never have peace, and you'll never have contentment deep in your bones. But this vision is given by God to tell me that man is not on the throne, but God is on the throne. In the LA Times, recently after the earthquake, the 6.6 .6 earthquake, there was a letter to the editor and it said, Dear editor, and somebody gave me a copy, it said, Everybody should know that God is not in charge of earthquakes. God is not in charge of earthquakes. That, of course, is the argument of a humanist or an atheist. Beverly came in last night and read me something from that man of God, Dr. James Dobson, who has that wonderful program, Focus on the Family. When I heard this, I could have wept. But U.S. chaplains have had their, their insignia changed in the U.S. Army. Did you know this? Chaplains in the Army. Once upon a time, they had the cross. A U.S. chaplain in the Army, the U.S. Army, had a cross to symbolize the fact that this was something tied in with the cross of Jesus. But they have removed the cross from the U.S. Army, the chaplain's department, and they have put there instead the symbol of the sun. Mm. James Dobson says, what next is this country going to do? And so man may want to get rid of God, and they may say, God is not in the earthquake. But I say to you, my friend, if God is not in the earthquake, then who is? God is in the earthquake. God is in the fire. God is in the persecution. God is in the nervous breakdown. God is in the cancer because God is on his throne. You may say, but that is a strange picture of God. My friend, God does not wish that there be a cancer. This goes against his nature. God does not wish that anything harmful should come to us. But I want you to know God is in charge of everything. He is. God, I, have, I have a strong belief in the Bible teaching of the sovereignty of God and that all things work together for good to those that love God. And some of my Christian friends say, yes, but that means only good things work together for good. I want to tell you bad things work together for good. A financial failure will work together for good if you love God. Amen. And if you've been called because of His purpose, I have a concept today which I believe is a biblical concept that God is in charge of everything in this life and everything in this world and everything is working together for good. Amen. I want to read you something and you know it by heart I'm sure. The hymn writer wrote, Under the shadow of thy throne 
Thy saints have dwelt secure. Did you hear that? Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. And so if you abide today under the shadow of the throne, your defense is sure. Others tell me there is no purpose to our existence. We're simply the victims of circumstances. Thomas Hardy said these words. He described, listen to these words, the dreary, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show. There are Christians who have somewhat a similar concept. When bad things happen to them, they say, well, it shows that God doesn't care. He spoke about the dreamy, dark, dumb thing, thing, capital T, that turns the handle of this idol show. I want you to know this today. Believe this, my brother. Believe this and you will see the glory of God. What is happening to us in our life is not a dumb, dreary, dark, idol show. Everything is working to a divine purpose and God is in charge and he will bring good out of bad Amen. because the king is on his throne. Let me ask the question, what is this king really like who sits upon the throne? I want to read you a statement from Professor Ramsey out of his commentary on Revelation. Listen to this, it's, it's good. The heart of his is full of human sympathies. This is talking about the king on the throne. The heart of his is full of human sympathies, but they are the sympathies of a God and not powerless like the tears of a mere man. Does that do something good for you? The heart of God is filled with human sympathies, but they are the sympathies of a God, and not a mere man. When Jesus weeps, death itself lets go its grasp, and Lazarus comes forth. He loves you with all the tenderness and gentleness and warm affection of his human heart, but with all the force of that divinity to which it belongs. It's a good thing to know that the king upon his throne, while he has the sympathies of a human being, does not have the weaknesses of a human being. It is a good thing to know that the king seated upon his throne in all his glory is all-powerful, and everything he does is good. And he's in charge of all. Please read on a little further, would you mind? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4 that describes the 24 elders. This is a very, very interesting chapter, as you'll see when we read verse, verse 4. It's quite amazing. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And so there is a central throne in the kingdom of God, in the heavenly sanctuary, in the most holy place within the veil. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders, and they're there sitting, 
clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. I wonder, who are these 24 elders? The Bible draws the picture of the Lord in all his glory. Then the Bible says, there are another 24 thrones, and there are 24 elders. We will notice today, as we read through the scriptures, that these 24 elders are 24 human beings. They're not angels. The 24 elders are 24 of the saints of God who have been raised from the dead and who've already made it home to heaven. Now let me clarify this for you. We believe that the Bible teaches that when a person dies, he goes to sleep. And he sleeps in the grave until the resurrection. This is the plain teaching in the Bible. And so we do not believe that when a person dies, he goes straight into the presence of God. We believe the Bible teaching is that he sleeps in the grave until the resurrection. But the Bible tells me something quite astounding. The Bible says that there's, there are some exceptions to the rule. And the Bible tells me that already a group of human beings have been redeemed from the grave and they've made it through to the other side. The Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches that these 24 elders are 24 human beings redeemed from among men already safe home in glory. Would you come over here to Matthew 27 and let me endeavor to prove that to you, please? Because I know that is going to be somewhat of a new idea to some of you. Matthew 27 and verse 50 and onwards, please. Matthew 27 and verse 50 and onwards, dear hearts. Verses 50 to 53 and a sweet music to me to hear the pages of the Bible being turned. Matthew 27, verse 50 and onwards. Jesus, when he'd cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, or the old KJV says, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Now notice what happens here when Jesus is dying. And the graves were opened. And what does it say? Hmm. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The Bible tells me that after, uh, after Calvary, at the time of, of the death of Jesus, the Bible tells me that there was a mighty resurrection, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the, into the city and they appeared to many. Now, we do not know who those people were. We do not know. But they were obviously some of the most illustrious of the saints of God. And the Bible says that at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, these people were raised from the, from this, from the sleep of death, and the Bible indicates that later on they were taken home to heaven. Now, let me give you a text that I think indicates that. Come over here to Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 8, Ephesians chapter 4, dear hearts, and verse 8, please. Now, I find this uh, wonderfully encouraging because it tells me that some have already made it to the other side. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 8. Therefore, he says, 
when he ascended on high, this is speaking of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captives. You notice that? He led captivity captives and gave gifts to men. Now if you read this in the Greek or if you read it in uh, another translation, it says, he led home a multitude of captives. So when Jesus ascended to the Father, Jesus did not go alone. But Jesus took a, a large group of people who'd been raised from the dead. And out of this large group of people, God has selected 24 elders. And so when you go into the very throne room of the universe, there is the throne, and God sits upon the throne. And around the throne, there are 24 representatives from the sons of, uh, sons of men who have been delivered from death and who have already made it to the other side. So this, this is a wonderful thing to me. Would you please come back now to Revelation 4 and move on and notice, please, the next verse or two. Can you do that, please? The Bible says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This, of course, is the symbol of judgment. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, Every person needs to know that this is highly symbolic and you can't take this literally. As will become very evident when we read the next two verses. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. Or it says in the old KJV, it says there are four beasts, but it's better translated. There were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had, the face, had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day nor night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, we wonder, what does this represent? It's certainly a strange picture, John, isn't it? So, firstly, you have the throne, and the person on the throne is like a great, like a great diamond, the, the whiteness, the glory. And then you have the red. Something else you have there that I should have mentioned is that there's a rainbow around the throne. You know what the rainbow represents? It represents that God always keeps his word. The rainbow is the symbol of the covenant. And the Bible tells us that the person who is seated upon the throne is the God who always keeps his word. This is a symbol of the mercy and the grace of God. And then around the throne, there are 24 thrones, minor thrones. And the Bible tells us that these 24 elders are people who've already been redeemed from the earth. And then the Bible says around the throne, there are four beasts. Uh, better translated, there are four living creatures, because they are not beasts as we understand it. Uh, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of a calf, and the face of an eagle are all mentioned. And this is symbolic. The face of a man represents intelligence, the face of a lion, majesty and strength, the face of a calf, service and faithfulness, and the eagle, swiftness and sharpness of vision. It is a very, very interesting thing that these words are almost a direct quotation out of the book of Ezekiel. 
In the book of Ezekiel, you have virtually the same picture. You have these living creatures with the wings and the face of a man and the face of a lion and the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. Now, what does all of this represent? Do not, my friend, in our wildest imaginations, try to say this is, this is something which is literally in heaven. That there are creatures up there with, with all of these strange characteristics. These characteristics are to be understood as representative. And these living creatures are full of intelligence, majesty, strength, faithfulness, full of swiftness, and they have sharpness of vision. Now please come over with me to the book of Ezekiel, which I think explains the vision here of the Revelation. Come over now please, if you don't mind, to Revelation, uh, or rather over to uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Ezekiel chapter 1, and verses 4 to 6. And here you have almost the same words. Ezekiel chapter 1, and of course the book of Revelation draws very heavily from the book of Ezekiel, as well as the other prophets in the Old Testament, but particularly from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 1, and verses 4 to 6. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire encircling itself. Uh, this is very much like Revelation 4. And brightness was, was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Our God is a majestic God, is He not? Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. Now here you have their description. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Uh, their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's feet. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. And you can read on there, and you have this description of these cherubim. Verse, verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. And so this is almost identical to the language of Revelation. Now if you come to chapter 10 of Ezekiel, and I think it's verse 20, it tells us who these creatures are, these strange-looking angelic beings. Ezekiel chapter 10, please, and verse 20. And I'm glad that you're turning the text because this is important. We're so glad that when you come to church, you bring a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll lend you a Bible. Ezekiel 10 and verse 20, This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were what? Yeah, they're cherubim. So what, what, what are these cherubim? What is a cherubim? And so here we have this tremendous picture of the throne room of the universe. And right in the very center of the throne, in, in the very center of the universe, within the veil, in the Holy of Holies, you have this throne. And there's a person seated upon the throne. This is God Almighty. And there you see God in all His glory, in all His majesty, full of indescribable glory. And around Him there are 24 thrones, lesser thrones. 
and these thrones are occupied by 24 human beings. Now, we do not know who they are, but we do know that they were people who were redeemed from the grave, and they went home with Jesus to glory. So that gives us hope that there are some of God's people who've already made it through to the other side. And then the Bible says, around the throne there are four living creatures. I believe that this represents four great divisions of the angelic hosts. They're full of wisdom, they're full of grace, they're full of power, they're full of might, they're swift in their vision, and they're full of eyes. The Bible says they've got eyes in the front and they've got eyes in the back, they've got eyes everywhere. What does that mean? It means that they see everything. My friend, you can't hide anything from God and you can't hide anything from the heavenly hosts. You, you know, some of us are a bit crazy because we think that when we sin, if we don't tell anybody, and if nobody catches us, then nobody knows. But I want you to know something, my friend, God knows it all. Amen. Isn't it a lot better to come to Jesus and confess it and get rid of it? Amen. So the Bible gives us this picture of all the angels. I, I find this so exciting because it tells me that heaven, while it is filled with supernatural beings, while you have the almighty God there and you have the angels, you've also got human beings there. All around the throne of God. And this is the great scene of the last great judgment. As we're told in Daniel 7, because it's exactly the same. And the question is, what is going on there at the control center of the universe? Would you please come with me back to Revelation? And I want you to notice what is going on there today. Revelation chapter 4. If you were to step into heaven today, my friend, you'd find it's a noisy place. There's a lot of action going on in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying... Now, what does that mean? Can I make a confession to you? When I was a little boy, I did not want to go to heaven. <laughs> I didn't want to go to heaven because I thought it would be so boring. Because I'd read these texts that all people do is praise God and they sing psalms all day long. That's pretty hard for a little boy to take. In fact, it's pretty hard for me to take. What does it mean when it says that they're praising God all the time? It means that they live in the atmosphere of praise. Praise is the language of heaven. Christians, and I want to say this particularly Adventists, we need to learn to praise God because most of us don't know how to praise God. Amen. And when, when we go into a church, on a scale of 1 to 10, the quieter the church is, the more holy we think it is. We got around the wrong way. When I was a young minister out of college, boy, I must have been a pain. Because I felt that the quieter a church was, and the more solemn everything was, the closer we were to God. But then I got interested in biblical archaeology, and I went and saw the tombs of the pharaohs, and I discovered that the tombs of the pharaohs were like a lot of churches. Just dead as dead can be. 
And so people confuse quietness and sanctimoniousness with righteousness. Nothing to do with it, folks. It's got nothing to do with it. Can I tell you something? There are a number of people you need to be careful about. And the person you've got to watch most of all is a person who talks religion all the time. Did you know that? The person, whenever he opens his mouth, he's got some pious platitude and he's full of religious statements and is always bubbling out, watch it, watch it, he'll be after your money. Or something more. So religiosity on the whole is a pretty bad thing. There's nothing worse in the world than pompous church members who think that they're righteous and they own God and everybody else is going to hell. When you read the book of Revelation and when you read the Bible, you read a lot about love. Mm -hmm. A lot about love. You read a lot about kindness. You, lead a, you read a lot about righteousness and holiness. These are the characteristics of God. And you also read a lot about singing and shouting and praising the Lord. Mm -hmm. Boy, now, I don't want you to get carried away, brother. Okay, <laughs> just one nod. Okay. And they do not rest day or night saying, now here you have an expression that you can only understand really when you think of the Trinity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, we're going to read verses 9 to 11, and then I'm going to invite you to worship with me today. Worship the living God. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, my friend, that's what we ought to do to Jesus. Don't take the glory to ourselves. There's nothing, anything we've ever done that should bring glory to us. What have you ever done, friend, that deserves glory? Absolutely nothing. Anything good that we do, we do it by the grace of God. I had some folks say to me, now, wasn't, this certainly isn't my, in my notes and I hope it's not going to get me into more trouble, but they said, such and such appeal will give you a big donation as long as you give them plenty of credit and put it in print. A lot of people only give, my friend, for the cause of Christ, not because they love Christ or they love the kingdom of God or they love people, but so they can have their name in lights. They want the glory. I want to tell you there's only one who's worthy of glory, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. We should not take glory to ourselves for anything we've ever done. The best thing that you have, you have ever done, my friend, the best thing I've ever done has been tainted by my sinfulness. Oh, you say, but that may be so with you, but it's not so with me. You just don't know. The best thing we've ever done. Did you know Alan White, the prophet of God, made this statement, and it's pretty hard for you me to believe it because we're such born Pharisees. We all are. We're all born Pharisees. You don't need to go to seminary to learn to be a Pharisee. It comes naturally. Hmm. Alan White said this, that the prayers of God's true believers 
Now, Pharisees hate this statement. That's why they sent her out to Australia after the Minneapolis debacle. They got her out there because she was such a thorn in the flesh of the brethren. They said, let's get her out of this country and send her to Australia. But she wrote a lot of letters in Australia. She said the prayers of true believers in passing through the corrupt channels of humanity are so defiled that unless purified with blood, they have no efficacy with God. She says that even our prayers need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. So don't take any glory because you can pray nice. Or because you can sing nice, or you can preach nice, or you can give nice. None of us, my friend, ought to get any glory. Glory belongs to Jesus. And when a person gets puffed up in the church, a preacher or a teacher, whoever he is, and he starts to say to himself, boy, look at me, I'm doing pretty good here, he better watch it because God can very quickly take the wheels off the chariot. Mm -hmm. So let's not think that we're doing anything in ourselves that is praiseworthy. Glory belongs to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. That's what we ought to do every day. We ought to give him the glory. Ought to give him the honor. People say, you know, wasn't it wonderful what you folks did baptizing 4,000 people over there in the city of Gorky in Russia? Greatest baptism in the history of Russia. How wonderful, how glorious. Glorious for Jesus. Who spoke to the hearts of the people? Hmm. Who raised up the money? Who got people to give for the campaign? Mm. Yeah. Who converted the people? It was the work of the Holy Spirit. Give him the glory. Amen. So he says, the Bible says, whenever the living creatures, these are the angels, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord. There's only one person who's worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. On one occasion, the great Alexander the Great, who conquered the world, noticed that a man who was a scholar who came with him was fossicking around among some tombs. And he had a bunch of old bones. Alexander said, what are you doing with these bones? What are you doing there, wasting time? He said, sire... I'm trying to tell the bones of your ancestors from the bones of their slaves. And I can't see any difference. It is true that every person sitting here today in this great church is simply a heap of animated mud. That's what we are. We are simply animated mud on the way to dust. You know how far you and I are away from death? This thickness. 
the thickness of the wall of an artery. Therefore, we ought to give him glory. Amen. Ought to give him praise. Ought to give, give him worship. Ought to give him love. Ought to give him everything because he alone is worthy to be praised. Amen. So think about it today. If you could walk into heaven today, what would you see? Oh, my friend, you and I just couldn't bear the sight. If you and I walked into heaven today, if we went within the veil, we would see a throne. Mm. And uh, Bill Clinton's not sitting on it. Or Boris Yeltsin. You're not sitting on it either. The great God of eternity sits upon the throne. Amen. The sight is overwhelming like a multitude of diamonds shot through with fire. Then there's a rainbow around the throne. There's voices proceeding from the throne and thunders and lightnings. And then around the throne there are 24 other thrones. And these are people who represent the church before the universe. Think of that representatives from the human race before the throne. And then there are thousands and thousands and millions and trillions of sinless holy beings and they shout, holy, holy, holy. And they give him the glory and the honor and they fall down at his feet and they cast their crowns. And the church ought to be a little bit like heaven. Listen to me, because I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. If you belong to a dead church, you go along to church, you've got a dead preacher and a dead congregation, work to revive the preacher, pray for him, pray for the congregation, work with all your might, pray and sweat and shed tears. But if nothing happens, then leave it and go somewhere where God is worshipped. Because you should not have to sleep in a church with other corpses. And we spoke about that last week when we spoke about the church of, of Sardis. When you go to church, church, my friend, ought to be a little bit like heaven where the people of God worship the living God and they give him the praise and the honor and the glory. So I want you please to stand up now and I want you to join me in the worship of the God of heaven. Please stand up. All of you stand up. And I, I'm going to read some verses and I want you to read them after me. Listen to me. I want to say this to you very, very carefully. I want earnestly to see every person here saved in the kingdom of God. And God is saving people in this church, but some of us have never come to salvation. All we know is a bunch of religiosity. And that's garbage. It's better for you to be an atheist than to be an overly religious, pompous Pharisee. Because God can save an atheist, let me tell you, the people that I found the easiest to talk to were the members of the KGB. I found them a hundred times easier to talk to than people who've gone to church for 20, 30, 50 years. Because they were looking for something. But many of us have never done a thing for God in our lives. 
and we think that being saved is going to church and going through a rigmarole and we've never had our hearts stirred. Can I tell you this? Don't forget this. And you may not enjoy this one either, what I'm going to say. A person in church whose heart has never been warmed by the Spirit of God even though he's the preacher or the head elder, if his life should be taken from him, would wake up in hell. That is the word of God. It is the truth. I say, we do not want a dead religiosity. We want the power of God in our lives and in our church. Amen. I told you last week, why do so many people leave the church? Of our church in North America, more than two million have left the church. And we say, well, that's because they're such bad people. No, it's because they couldn't stand the deadness. Many young people have said, if I'm going to go to hell, I might as well go there and enjoy the trip at least. Because most religious people are going there, but they don't even enjoy the trip. They hate it. And they do it because they're scared of the fire. I want to tell you what is true Christianity. True Christianity is worshiping the king upon his throne. It's casting our crowns before him. It's not taking the glory ourselves. It is giving him the glory because he has purchased us. It is loving him. It is loving him until it hurts us because we know that he loved us and went to the cross for us. Amen. It is knowing that the, ki that the person who shares the throne with the Father has got hands that are pierced. It is getting warm inside. It is getting changed inside. And when a person is changed inside and he's hot inside, so the peel will even say he's enthusiastic, then a person can worship. I want to say this for the record. Seems to me, I wish I was wrong, but it seems to me most churches I go into are as dead as the tombs of the pharaohs. There's no worship. There's no praise. There's no glory. There's no amens. There's no shouting of hallelujah. And that is not because we're righteous. It's because we're stinking, lost, damned sinners in need of redemption. And what we need is for the mighty Spirit of God to come down in power upon us and for our lives to be changed and we quit doing what so many people are doing, quit the rigmarole of playing church and going through the facade. I say, my friend, let's stop playing church and let us worship God. Amen. Let us know God. Let us give Him the glory. Let us give Him the honor. Let us give Him the praise. Did you know that is normal Christianity? It's the Christianity of the Bible. 
And when some people get to heaven, if they do, by the grace of God, they're going to have a terrible shock because they're going to find out there's so much noise, so many trumpets, so many trumpets, so many, so many people shouting glory. If you want to join them, you need to learn to shout glory. Glory.